Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. Hello, Maestro. We're going to start this lovely episode, which is to do with listeners' questions. It's so touching and thrilling for us to think that anybody at all listens to the show. And when they write in, it just sort of makes our hearts bump with joy and gladness. And particularly this first question, do you have nicknames for different operas? Yes, we have Cav and Pag, don't we? God, no, there's tons of those. So Cozy... Huh? is for Cosi Van Tote, but that's ridiculous because Cosi just means thus. So we're going to have a production of thus. Mm. Cosi, we call it Cosi. The Bartered Bride by Smithna <laughs> is rather amusingly nicknamed the Battered Bridge. Yes. Because it sounds good. I mean, look, we call Marriage of Figaro Figaro. But we call Merchant of Venice Merchant. I mean, we, you know, we shorten yeah. things down. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, when they had Les Miserables and everybody said, oh, which people are calling the glums. Nobody ever called it the glums. I call I think, it the glums. Well, there we are. There's <laughs> a huge distance has appeared between us. Thank you so much, Stephen, for that. Lynn Smith. Lynn, thank you so much for contacting us. And Lynn says, as I've grown older... Lynn, you never grow older. As I've grown older, I've come to appreciate classical music more and more. And now, at the age of 69, I'd like to go to the opera for the first time. What would you recommend for an old first-timer? Stevie, what would you say? (laughs) Did she say that? She said an old. I know she's not old, but, but, but maybe to go to opera for the first time. That's a wonderful age to start, actually. So at your age, Lynn, which is young as far as I'm concerned... I mean, look at the top 10, for example. They are the most popular and the most often performed. And that would include Tosca and Madame Butterfly and La Boheme. And of those, La Boheme is the shortest. Mozart's Magic Flute is also in the top 10. And Bizet's Carmen. And if you read just a little bit about them and have just an inkling of an idea of what you're going to see, this will draw you into the story much more quickly. I mean, Bizet's Carmen is full of the most glorious music. I'd recommend the magic flute because you can never see the magic flute often enough Mm. because it has such such a depth, but also a very, on the surface of it, it's very brilliant and very clear in its story. What about stories which are almost, well, uh, so much of opera is actually fairy stories, but something like Rosalka, on which the, the cartoon film Little Mermaid was based, but the girl who's a mermaid who falls in love with a handsome prince. And then, of course, when she comes out of the water, she loses her voice, doesn't she? Yes, that's a brilliant idea. Yeah. Now, Rosalka is an opera that is not in the top ten, And that is because operas fall out of fashion Mm. in the broadest sense. But Rusalka is an opera that when one company does a production, as English National Opera did way back in the 80s when I was still working there, it hadn't been done for a long time. But within a few years, a lot of companies were doing it. Then there was a lull and then Grange Park Opera did a wonderful production, which was so popular that we repeated it the next year. We revived it and sold out again. Rusalka is a wonderful opera to go and see. It's Vorjak, very romantic, immensely touching. Do you think it's important when somebody sees an opera for the first time that that they see it not in a very modern production, i.e. you get an idea? I mean, in Rusalka, particularly the Grange Park Opera version, which you conducted and which I saw, 
was ravishing. You could see there was a wood, you could see the water, you could see the, the palace where the, where the young prince lived. It was all made quite clear. Now, if you've got a bare stage and the cast is dressed in, in T-shirts and jeans, you don't get quite the same grip of it. And I'm a traditionalist and I love the operas to look pretty much as they were maybe first shown. Yes, this is slightly problematic thing these days because some opera companies feel that they should be encouraging new directors with new ideas. But sometimes for people who haven't seen the opera, this can be very confusing. Mm. So there is a problem here for people who don't know much opera going to see a production that has taken a bit of the story and made that the focus. It's called Das Konzept in German term, the concept, which always varies what the composer and the librettist first intended. This is something which all performance art, I mean, things like Shakespeare, Shakespeare only wrote a limited number of things. There's no more Shakespeare to be done. And quite often when production companies do it, they think, well, everybody's seen the Merchant of Venice or whatever it is. So let's do something completely different because everybody would be bored stiff with it. Forgetting. Hasn't no, but they it. haven't. This is the truth of it. A lot of people haven't. So, Lynn, I want you to go to something that is quite classically done. Would that be very boring of me? No, 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 not at all. I mean, look, when I conduct an opera, I really find it difficult when a director has been employed. And brilliant though the ideas might be, illuminating it might be, in that they focus on certain elements in the story and bring them to the fore rather than the narrative. I really fight with that because I'm not looking at the score and thinking, well, we can do without the brass. Why don't we get a drum kit in and make it more relevant today and mm. get a couple of guitars and amplify things? Mm. I'm not doing that. No. So what would you we, say? You say what you offer I would you say think. Carmen by Bizet, would be a very powerful experience and uplifting and memorable. I would also say that La Boheme is a wonderful way to begin a possibility of looking at more Puccini operas. And I would suggest a production of The Magic Flute mm. or The Marriage of Figaro, because The Marriage of Figaro, I think, is very close to Rossini's Barber of Seville. Well, I love The Barber of Seville. For the number one slot. What is Marriage of Figaro. Is it number one slot? Well, yes, it's all... Look, statistics generally show that Marriage of Figaro and Traviata and La Boheme and uh, Madame Butterfly are probably... And Carmen are and, probably... And obviously in Turandot and Rizalka. So no, no, help. no, Turandot is not. No, I know it isn't, and I don't know why, because it's a very exciting story. <laughs> it Lynn, is. Turandot and Rizalka, yeah. not in the top ten, no. are absolutely, overwhelmingly wonderful. Now, maestro, I want to link this to Stephanie Kite, who says, Stevie, I love it that you call him Stevie. <laughs> Stevie, I'd like to know what your journey was to becoming a maestro. Stephanie, may I call you Steffi? There are plenty of people all the time actually aspiring to become conductors. Mm. And the question really was, how did mine happen? And I think one has to admit that each conductor's particular journey is individual to them. No one really falls into it in the same way. But for me, I think it sprang from when I was about 11 or 12 or 13, when I became fascinated by what Alan Wicks, the wonderful organist and choirmaster, inspired beyond belief, really. He was an inspired musician and teacher. 
I was fascinated by what he was doing and how he was doing it. And he used to sometimes put in my reports, he just looks at me. He just looks at me, which, of course, I think I did because I was fascinated. And I found myself questioning, well, if we're doing it that way, it could be done the other way. So I became engrossed with, with how to shape music. And then I learned several instruments. And then I went up to Cambridge and started conducting I think I was slightly at a loose end. I was spending four or five hours in the organ loft every night in my first term, wondering, is this all it is? Which, of course, happens to everybody before you find the right train to get on. Mm. I think it was dear Simon, he wouldn't remember, Simon Rattle, who said, well, why don't you, why don't you conduct? Get up and do some conducting. So I began to do that. I started small and really loved it. And I think what I was doing was analysing what I was hearing so I was focusing on developing how you listen to what's being played to an orchestra and analysing it. Did I like the speed? Did that seem what Beethoven or Sibelius might have wanted? And just listening to an enormous amount of repertoire. And then I started conducting a lot at Cambridge and it began to flow. And when I came out of Cambridge, I thought, no, this is far too competitive. Maybe I'll go and become a, a schoolmaster, a music teacher somewhere, head of department somewhere. I thought of getting a job as an organist. Alan Wicks, by the way, wrote me a letter saying, I will not give you a reference for any of these things. <laughs> you must get, get on. So I did a bit of percussionizing and organ playing and singing, earned a little bit of money, started playing as a repetiteur, but I'd been conducting my own little ensemble as well. And then Glyndebourne gave me a chance, having seen I'd conducted so much at Cambridge, offered me an opera. And that was that. Thank so you. I was off. You were. You were maestro. And this is why you're sitting here today. Married but to me and maestro. No, you've got to stop now. The, the you have to thing stop is, now. The, 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 no, no, there's a rider to this. The important thing is that there are many ways for a young conductor to begin. But you do have to be sure that you have a vast coverage of repertoire. You need the background in your mind musically mm. before you start, because otherwise you will simply be threshing around in the wind. You need to build up the background your background, your encyclopedia of music and what you think about it. Thank you, Maestro. <laughs>